You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. My guest today is Ronald J. Greer. He's the author of The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Saul. Ronald, where did you grow up? I grew up in a little town in Louisiana, up in northwest Louisiana, a little town called Mendon, outside of Shreveport. And I uh, then went to college at, at LSU. And then in uh, 1969, went from LSU over to Atlanta, Georgia, to Emory's Candler School of Theology to go to seminary. So later on, you became this incredible pastoral counselor. How did your journey to that ministry begin? I always knew that I wanted to be in ministry, and I assumed that was going to be in the parish ministry. And therefore, as I said, I went to seminary to be a parish minister. And through the first 10 years of my ministry, I was in the parish ministry. I served two different Methodist parishes, and it was a very meaningful experience to me. All facets are if it were meaningful, except, of course, for the committee meetings. I don't know if anybody <laughs> enjoys those. But I enjoyed the, uh, the, every other facet of it. But the one that stood out to me was the counseling. It was the pastoral care, which is to get to know the people, and then the pastoral counseling part of it, which, which was to connect with the people at the most important parts of their lives, and, and often having to do with the struggles and the heartaches of their lives. And I realized that when I was connecting with people at those points in their lives, we were, we were on holy ground, mm. and, and that is what I found to be most meaningful. So through my almost decade in the parish, I increasingly got clarity that what I wanted to do was to go back to, to graduate school and pastoral counseling. And that's exactly what I did. So about 42 years ago, I had finished that graduate work and I joined the pastoral counseling service at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church. And I have been there now for as of next month, it'll be 42 years. So I've made a habit of it. So, <laughs> You know, many people who go into pastoral ministry lean more towards the idea of preaching and evangelizing. But for you, it looked like you were leaning more towards the wounds of the people, the human document and the struggles within. What is it about you that made you to lean to more towards that? I, I don't. Th- th- there are two or three ways of expressing it. and. One of them is that I was so touched by those who had reached out to me at points in my life that had been painful or difficult, and I knew that their reaching out to me in the way that they did was an absolute gift of God. And I wanted to, in some ways, I wanted to, I guess we could say more superficially, to return the favor. But far more deeply is I knew how deeply touched I had been, and I wanted to see, and this is the phrase that I continue to use for, to, to, for, for me and for all of us, I wanted to see how I could make a difference in people's lives. I, I believe that, uh, that what we are called to do 
is, is to lead a life of purpose that gives us, therefore, a life of meaning. And my purpose in life is to see how I can make a difference in the lives of others, and specifically the people who are struggling and hurting. Mm. And difference, I think you made an amazing difference. So let's transition to your book, The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. What was the motivation behind writing this beautiful book? I lost my wife, Karen, three and a half years ago. And I had, let me give you a little a little background. So I had, uh, Karen and I, 40 years ago, had lost our two-year-old son in a tragic automobile accident. And that was when I first became personally acquainted with grief, grief at its absolute depth. Hmm. And I knew what that journey was like. I knew the pain of that. I knew the importance of successfully going, engaging that journey. And when Karen died, what took me what so so it didn't take me by surprise, but 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 what stood out to me was the difference that I became aware of the uniqueness. And I had written an earlier book on grief uh, back in 2006 called Markings on the Windowsill that had to do with the that that was a response to our son's death. And with Karen's death, what stood out to me, Saul, was the uniqueness between the two. I lost both of my parents. I've lost a number of friends over the years, had lost my son, as I said, and now I had lost my wife. About a year and a half after Karen's death, I realized how unique that loss was. In the field of thanatology, as I, I, I know you know, the, the, the thanatology, the study of grief and death, it is one of, the, one of the rules of thumb is one of the insights is that the death of a parent is related to our past. The death of a spouse is related to our present, and the death of a child is related to our future, our future both with the child and, of course, their future beyond our lives. Mm. But I became aware of the truth of that, the profound truth of that, when Karen died. About a year and a half after her death, I, I was so clear about it being the loss of our present, of how our lives, just the warp and woof of the fabric of our lives, as they say, was so tied up into each other's that we just took step by step throughout each day together. And what a profound loss that was. It was like a ripping apart of that fabric. And what a profound loss that was, just as the loss of a child and the loss of, of parents are profound in different ways. And I said after a year and a half, Saul, mm. I said, I've got to write about this one because I have sisters and brothers out there who are experiencing the same thing. And some of them have the the background that I have and some don't. I've got to write about this. I want to to share some insights that that I have from my own story. And therefore I sat down and wrote, but it had to do with the inspiration of realizing what a unique experience this was, unique and and uh, and obviously, as with all losses, deeply painful. Man, you've been through multiple losses. To hear the loss of your son at such a young age, you said he was two years old. How does a father, a parent, recover from such a, a significant loss, especially, like you said, loss of a future in a way? The There's a saying... 
there are some losses we never get over. We simply learn how best we're going to deal with them. Mm. And because of that loss of the, of the future, oh, goodness, I have, I have absolutely gone thousands of miles in healing from that. But there will always be that tenderness. It, it is the loss of a child is what I refer to as a contradiction of nature. They're supposed to outlive us. And the healing that we can engage is tremendous. As everyone who has lost a child knows that we heal and we move forward with our lives. But there is always a significant tenderness that is, that is associated with the loss of a child. And every parent who has lost a child is aware of that part of the wound that doesn't quite heal because they are supposed to outlive us. But if we engage, as we'll be talking about this morning, as we engage our, our grief, as we engage our mourning, healing happens. And there is hope out there because healing does happen. But the loss of a child is one of those that, that really stands apart as a unique loss, just as the loss of a spouse stands apart in its own way as a unique loss. Those are the two. The loss of parents, oh my goodness, especially if it's unexpected and premature, that, that can be, that can be uh, traumatic. But the loss of a parent in, in, after having lived a completed life, the, the uh, loss of a parent is something that's expected. And we anticipate it coming. And therefore, it's a different kind of blow. But the loss of a child and the loss of a spouse are the two that really take our breath away. Yeah. And the title of your book is The Quiet House. Why that title? The title came both from how, and, and I, I was married to one delightful lady. And oh my gosh, the, the life and the vitality. It, uh, Saul, <laughs> as, the, as the saying goes, I married way over my head. <laughs> and the life and vitality that, that she brought to to our lives. Let, let me just mention very very in 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 in, uh, in summary fashion. Uh, she she would when our grand we have three grandsons. When our grandsons would come over, she would take them out in the backyard, and and she would huddle up with the th there were just the four of them, and the, she would huddle up with the three grandsons, and she would say to them, "Okay, I want you to go out in the backyard." and find the prettiest thing you can find and then come back and we'll huddle up again. And I want you to report on the prettiest thing you could find. And they would go out and find him and come back and they would report. And there was just <laughs> such life and vitality in all of their voices. That's who she was. She did not, she was not Pollyanna. She did not invent the beauty in the world. She looked for the beauty in the world. Toward the very end of her, one, one other quick story, toward the very end of her life, Karen, Karen was very weak and from the treatments and from the cancer. She came downstairs. I was going into, the, into the, my office there at the church about to leave. And she came downstairs, got up unusually early, and she took her place on the sofa and pulled up her blanket over her. I fixed her a cup of tea and we sat and chatted for just a moment. And then I kissed her goodbye and started out for the car, went out. I'd opened the car door, and to my surprise, the door to the garage opened. And before I got in the car, and her her face was so was so weak 
from the cancer, but there was a big smile on that face. And she said to me as I was about to step into the car, Ron, go be a ray of God's light. Mm. That's who she was. She was a ray of God's life, and she brought his light and his joy to our home. And with her death, then the home got suddenly quiet. Mm. I remember the day that, uh, and it was quiet throughout those first few weeks, and then Thanksgiving came, and our whole family came over. And of course, it was a different Thanksgiving, our first one without Karen. And but it was a good one because I have just such a delightful, engaging, loving family. And then very soon it was it was middle afternoon, mid afternoon, and my family got in their car and they headed out. And that was when I walked back in the house from the first holiday, walked back in alone. Hmm. And I hesitated, Saul, before I opened the, the door to the house because I knew how quiet it was going to be. And I stepped into the hallway, and as I walked down that hallway, I realized that was the hallway that the scripture was talking about. Yea, though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, that hallway was my valley, and my house was utterly quiet. And that is the transition that I was engaging in, 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 in mourning Karen's death and in mourning my loss. But that that's where the... I've had so many, since the book was published a few months ago, I've had so many spouses who have lost their husbands and wives to comment to me, oh, that title, that title resonated before I even opened the book. Yeah. We all know that experience. So how does somebody come to terms with a quiet house while dealing with this, with the grief of this significant loss? Thank you. You teed that question up beautifully. The two attitudes that I encourage, both of them come out, and and, and this is where I am very respectful of any time I refer to anything from my Judeo-Christian heritage, I'm always referred to it as it applies to persons of every faith and of persons who do not have a faith. So I'm, I'm not proclaiming my faith. I'm proclaiming the truth that that is behind it and behind all faiths. Yea, though I walk through the valley, there are two key words there. One is valley. I have to, in, in, in response to your question, I have to honor the valley. I have to honor the grief. I have to honor the loss that I have suffered and the grief that comes with it. Let me come back to that in just a moment, if I may, Saul. But that's the one key word from that phrase is valley. I've got to recognize the fact that I have got, I've entered the valley. I'm walking down that hallway. I've entered the valley of the shadow of death, and I have got to respect it. I've got to honor the grief and find my way of expressing it. Second key word in that phrase is through. Yea, though I walk through the valley, I don't take up residence there. I don't stop in the valley. I'm going through the valley, and that's my second attitude. My second attitude is that this is a process I am engaging as I go through the valley. The first, the valley has to do with the loss, has to do with the grief and the mourning. That requires courage. Going through the valley, that journey involves hope. 
The first involves courage and leads to mourning. The second, the second attitude I bring is the attitude of hope. I'm going through the valley. And that's because I believe in the healing that is to come. Well, that will take a little break. Again, our guest is Ronald J. Greer. He's the author of The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. We'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Berman. We continue our conversation with Ronald J. Greer. Uh, before the break, you were talking about coming to terms with a quiet house. So for people who are listening, what steps have you taken? I know uh, before the break, you spoke about some processes that you're going through. What steps have you taken now? to come out of this grief because there's the quiet house has an idea of a sense of loneliness. How are you coping with the loneliness of grief? How I began is with engaging the grief. Let me tell you a quick story at the, near the very end of Karen's life, perhaps two weeks before she died, she was still able to get up and, and she could walk slowly, but she could still get around and she was sitting at our breakfast table. And I was standing, leaning against the counter, and we were talking about the inevitable. We were talking about her dying. And Karen was more at peace with her dying than I was. And as we talked about it, so I just absolutely burst into tears. And I just started sobbing and sobbing. And Karen very slowly stood from her chair at the table. And she took the three steps over to me. And with those now frail arms of hers, she wrapped those arms around me and she held me as I cried and cried and cried. I have no, no idea how long I cried and she held me tight. But finally, I was finished and she stepped back and I looked into her eyes. And that was when the obvious dawned on me. She was holding me as I was crying about her dying. And Saul, I laughed and I said to her, isn't there something backward about this? Aren't I supposed to be comforting you? And then we both <laughs> laughed. No, there wasn't anything backward about this because she was at peace and I was in grief. Grief comes from the Latin gravis that Oh, it's so appropriate. It means heavy. Not surprisingly, it's the same as I know you know, it's the same root word as, uh, as our word gravity because of the weight of the emotional burden of it. How what we do when we grieve is we engage our grief. I want to make a, an important distinction at this point between grief and mourning. Grief is the emotional impact that we experience with every major loss. We experience the loss. We lose a loved one or we lose something else in life. But let's stay with a loved one right now. We lose a loved one. And the grief then is the emotion that we feel as we recognize that loss and we respond to that loss. 
That's grief. Mourning is what we then can choose to do with the grief. Mourning is to give the grief a voice. Mourning is to express it. Mourning is to get it out. We have no option about the grief. That's the emotional impact from the loss itself. But we can repress the grief if we choose to, and I highly discourage it. Mm. Or we can express the grief, which is the healthy way to proceed with this. Let, 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 me, let me share one, one, other, one other thought in, 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 in that regard. Anytime something happens to us, again, let's just stick with grief today. Anytime something happens to us like a major loss, we are infused with emotional input. It throws us emotionally off the balance. It throws us into disequilibrium. The way we get back in balance, the way we right the ship of emotional input is with output, with grief. We give it a voice. We cry it out or we talk it out or for those of us who journal, we write it out. Mm. But we find our best way of giving it a voice, of getting it out. I, I don't know about, <laughs> about your listeners, Saul, but I grew up in a, in a family I have often played. I grew up in a wonderful family. I was just <laughs> blessed out of my mind with the family I had. But expressing emotions is not something that was our long suit. I have often said that our unspoken family motto was, if you feel it, fake it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that is what I am strongly discouraging. Mm. I'm encouraging, if you feel it, give it a voice, cry it out, talk it out with those precious friends of yours, especially those two or three best friends of yours, give it or, or, or write it out. And that's where journaling is just absolutely powerful. I've talked with countless people who say to me, Ron, I don't want to wear out my friends. And I'll say to them, then wear out a tablet of paper. Yeah, Journaling can be powerful in terms of it getting those emotions up and out, it getting them expressed and given a voice. But that's where that's where I began in terms of working this through is to engage the grief. The grief is the emotion I feel. Mourning is how I get is how I engage it, how I give it that voice. And I strongly encourage that because if if you don't, then and, and we can talk about this more if you if you like. If you don't, then the uh, if you repress it instead, that's going to lead to depression. And if you like, we can talk about some of what's behind that. But yeah, because let, let's talk a little bit about that, because I like your idea of if you fail it, give it a voice. And uh, But we live in a society where many people actually choose the opposite of repressing their grief. And how dangerous could that be? Very. Oh, let's do talk about that. As I said, I have been a pastoral counselor for 40 years now. Countless times I have had, and and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on our gender. Saul, it's usually men because because that's <laughs> where women grow up learning how far and far healthier ways to express emotions, and and we guys don't don't get that education until perhaps later in our adult life. But at countless times I'll have someone, often a man, talk uh, coming in to see me because he's depressed, 
And I will ask many questions related to depression. But one of the questions I will ask sooner or later is, have you had a major loss in your life? And he may say, oh, yes. And he will describe for me the loss at a very early age, a premature loss of someone who was tremendously important to him. And I'll say, well, tell me, what did you do? How did you mourn that loss? And I find out that by the time he had walked away from the cemetery, he had grieved his last tear. Oh, my. There was so much grief that had then gone underground, that he had plowed under, that he had repressed. The way I have come to to express it is, by the way, I, I, I love the way that there was an elderly lady that I that I once I once read this wonderful quote of hers. She said, I just figure when life gives you tribulations, the good Lord expects you to tribulate. <laughs> I just love the way she put that. The way I have expressed the same thing, Saul, is, and this is to our point about depression, suppression brings depression. Expression brings emotional resurrection. But suppression or repression brings depression for, let me share it quickly, for two, for two important reasons. If I am experience a powerful loss and I repress those emotions, I plow them under, I can't repress. And this is what, what most people have, have not had the, the privilege of, of knowing. I can't repress one emotion without without repressing my entire emotional side. Hmm. I close the door. All of my emotions are in one room there in my heart. And if I close the door to a degree to my grief, then I'm closing the door to my joy hmm. and to my happiness and to my fulfillment. Therefore, my life is going to lack a kind of vitality and luster and fulfillment because I can't repress one without repressing them all. The second reason that that repression brings depression is, and and, and this is where I'm going to come up with a classier metaphor one day, but I'm sorry, it won't be today. <laughs> the metaphor I think of is 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 the the pressure cooker that my sweet mama used to cook with. She would put salt. So she'd put those green beans in that pressure cooker and cook them. I don't know for three days. You could you could eat those green beans with a straw. They were so tender. <laughs> it's like putting, if I repress my emotions, it's like putting them in my emotional pressure, pressure cooker, putting the lid on them. The problem, and, and, and I turn the fire on and they boil and they boil and the pressure builds. The only difference is unlike my mom's pressure cooker, there is no lock on the lid. So I have to keep holding it down and it takes as the pressure builds, I have to hold it with more and more intensity that then takes the energy away from the rest of my life hmm. and my enjoying the fulfillment of relationships and activities that I could enjoy with my life. And therefore, I lose the vitality. I lose the interest in the things that once gave me energy. I don't sleep well. My appetite is affected. All the symptoms of depression. I come, I become depressed because I am repressing those emotions instead of giving them a voice. Powerful. Well, that will take a little break. Again, our guest is Ronald Greer. He's the author of The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. 
It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Ron. On page 61, you have uh, the t- subtitle of Listening to Anger. How important is that? Oh, it is so important. I'm glad you asked about that. What, what very few people have had the opportunity to, to learn is the origin of anger. When I am angry about something, I am feeling so deeply that that emotion is bound to be a bedrock emotion. And it's not. It's a second tier emotion. It is an emotion in response to other emotions. It's referred to as a meta emotion, which that is the definition, an emotion in response to other emotions. It's not a primary emotion. It's a secondary emotion. When I think of anger, I think of of what I learned in the second grade. If you put blue and yellow together, you get green. Blue and yellow are the primary colors. Green is a secondary color. If you put hurt and fear together, you get anger. Hurt and fear are the primary emotions. Put them together and you get anger. Anytime I'm listening to someone who is angry, Saul, I almost don't hear the anger because I am listening. I am focused on where is their hurt coming from? The reason I focus on the hurt first over the fear is the fear is often that the hurt will be replicated, that they'll experience it again. So I listen for the hurt and where is their hurt coming from? The way the the, the tie-in with grief here is people who experience anger, who will experience a loss in their lives, may become enraged about it in a way that doesn't quite seem to match the experience they just had. And the rage that they're feeling is from their unhealed wound, perhaps from years ago. The unhealed wound of the loss that they experienced of the death of a loved one. And that wound never healed. And therefore, in these current circumstances, this new loss they experienced, that may be a far more minor loss, but they feel it powerfully because it has bumped up against that old unhealed wound with all of those those open nerves. It's interesting. I don't know who invented the phrase, but we all are, are familiar with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But post-traumatic stress disorder implies a disorder. That's a mental illness, mm. a disorder, a, a DSM-5 mental illness category. And <clears throat> there are many of us who are mentally, emotionally healthy people but who have unhealed wounds back there. And someone came up with a phrase, and I love it, PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury. Hmm. And that's not a disorder because these are healthy people. They're not mentally ill. 
but it doesn't mean they don't have injuries from their past that are unhealed. And so often that injury has to do with an unhealed grief, an unhealed wound from a loss in their lives. And something may trigger that wound and they go into an angry rage. Whereas what they really need to do is not deal with the anger. What they need to do is to deal with the grief that has never been touched. Hmm. Well said. And that, <laughs> and when somebody is dealing with that, really, it's important, like the next part you spoke about, forgive yourself. So sometimes, you know, people hold on and, and you have to let it out of your system. You have to let go and find a way to, to deal with it. And if there are ways of you forgiving yourself, I think that is important. I do. I, I, I do too. To the, the two things I, that I always match up anytime I am, am needing to forgive myself is A, forgive myself in the sense of letting it go. As I let it go, though, the way I let it go is I learn from it. I, I always want to go to school on what I have, have on mistakes that I've made. I always want to go to school on how can I do it better next time? How can I grow from the experience? Mm. So in most, for most people who are going through grief, whether it's the loss of a spouse or a loved one or any kind of loss, that first year anniversary, especially the loss of a spouse, can be challenging. How did you deal with it and how can somebody, you know, approach that first year anniversary and find healing? Oh, yes. That, that first year is, it's, <clears throat> it's often referred to, and back in the old days, uh, people would wear black for the first year. These days, people will feel, uh, out of the, because of their mourning, these days, all of us will feel the, uh, the, the, the grief, especially in that first year, because we experience each of these significant events for the first time without our loved one. Mm -hmm. And especially if it's the loss of a, of a spouse or a child, we are so accustomed to, do, to, to doing each of these events side by side with our loved ones. And as you approach then, then that has to do with all of the holidays, all of the special family gatherings, all of that is, is, is now uniquely done with the, what I refer to and think of as the empty chair. Mm -hmm. Whether there's literally an empty chair sitting there at the table as the family gathers, or it's a metaphor, it is a powerful experience. And it has to be honored as families gather. And then let me loop back to that first anniversary about which you were specifically asking. But as families gather on those special family occasions, Saul, I very much encourage them talk, especially in that first year, talk about the loved one who has died. Talk about them. Remember, remember the stories. Tell the stories. I remember the time that. And suddenly the, 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 the family is, uh, is, is, is bursting with laughter over the, the remembering that delightful moment of the loved one. And in other times, it will be a very tender story that's told. But it's a powerful thing to tell those stories together. Let me, 
let me take a side path here and then I'll promise I'll get back to the main path yeah. on the to, to, to your question. Uh, as I said, for the first uh, decade of my of my ministry, I was in the local parish, and there would be times that I would have a gentleman or lady in my in in my parish who might have an elderly parent who had died who did not have a pastor, and they would ask me, "Would you do the service?" And I would say, "Of course I will." What I want you to do is tomorrow afternoon at six thirty, I want you to get all your siblings, say their father had died. I want you to get all your siblings and your mother there at your in your den, and I want to come over, and I want you, to, you all of you to be prepared for two things. Number one, Taya, I want you to be prepared with your favorite story about your daddy. Number two, I want you to bring me the adjective that describes him the best, because I want to, at, at his celebration of life, at his memorial service, I want to honor his life, and I want to honor him with your stories and your description of him. So we would get together the next day, and we would spend an hour and a half or two hours with them telling their stories. And there would be tender stories and delightful stories, but they would tell for an hour and a half, they'd tell those stories. The next day, then, I would retell those stories in the, in the memorial service. After the service call, they would come by and see me. They would do the obligatory attaboys. Oh, pastor, you did such a good job. Well, the, you know, everybody's <laughs> got to do it, whether I did or not. But then they would always say, and Ron, thank you for getting us together. Telling our stories was transitional, mm. transformational for us. Hmm. That facilitated us to make to to travel several miles down this path together of remembering our dad and putting the scrapbook of our dad's life in our life story, putting our scrapbook together in our hearts. Hmm. Oh, so each of those times that families got and see, I just stumbled across that. It was not my insight. I just wanted to get those stories. I wasn't wasn't wise enough to know the power that was going to have. They taught me that yeah. I wanted to get the stories. But in telling the stories, oh, my gosh. And so, you know, for all these decades after then. I've been encouraging all of these families, when you get together, tell your stories, share your stories with each other. Then each of those holidays in that first year, then we come to that first anniversary and put on your seatbelt. I'm telling all of your listeners, if you haven't experienced your first anniversary, put on your seatbelt because it is going to be a powerful experience. It's going to be a healing experience, but in a very difficult way. It's going to require courage. Put on your seatbelt, anticipate the power of that first anniversary, because you are going to relive that experience that happened one year before, and you're going to experience it in a powerful way Countless, countless people have told me, and both with the death of my son and the death of my spouse, my wife, I experienced the same thing. It's like it happened all over again. So what I urge people to do in anticipation of that first year is don't wait for that day to do your mourning. Engage your mourning in anticipation of it. Get the tears, let the tears flow freely. Let the tears flow often. Let your one or two or three best friends know 
that you're going to need them during those days. And do not hesitate about calling them and letting them love you, letting them care about you. Then that day of the first anniversary, put your finger on the pulse as you're as you're leading up to it on how I want to spend that day. What I would tend to do over the years for our son and then over these last three years after Karen's death, what I tend to do is I will get together with someone who is special to me. With my, when my my son, when Karen was still alive, and it was the anniversary of our son's death, especially that first anniversary, she and I spent most of the day together. Then I would go out. I would tend to go out by myself to each of their graves, and I would tend to go out by myself so I could just mourn. I could just cry as I chose to, without anyone else being there. And then often families will tend to get together for dinner, or perhaps get together with two or three of your best friends. But you write the script as your heart tells you you want to write it. Then you get through that first year and perhaps then you have your second anniversary and your third and you're experiencing healing. And what I so encourage people to do is to respect the emotions as they come, as as the emotion is not nearly as intense as the healing is happening to remember to keep your grief current. Anytime you feel it and you have a private moment, okay, so it's been five years, it's been 10 years, that the greater the loss means the greater the love. You love this person tremendously. It doesn't matter how long it is. The memories will come up and a tear will come to your eyes. Shed it. I refer to them all as scattered showers. It may be a beautiful day, and then a memory will come up, and it's like a little cloud just popped up. And suddenly, on, on, on the 16th of July, in the middle of a beautiful day, there's a shower in the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> I need to cry my heart out because that memory touched me. And then, after, after a brief cry, then the, the, the cloud dissipates, blows away. And I'm back to enjoying my beautiful day. But to remember and honor the scattered showers. And if you do, people will find that their grief will be experienced differently as time goes by. These waves of grief, as they tend to come in, will come in less powerfully. It will come in less often, rather. They will hit less powerfully and they will recede more quickly. Because we're keeping our grief current, we're honoring it as it comes. What are your final thoughts? What I would conclude with would be that not only as we go through the valley is healing possible, but we very well may come out of the experience the stronger for having been there. It's more than just healing we become someone that we have never been before. I, I think of a, of a story, the uh, J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter series, she, in her earlier adult life, was absolutely destitute. She was a single parent with one child. She was barely living. She was not literally homeless. She was sleeping under a roof, but she was virtually homeless. And she didn't know how she was going to provide for herself and her child. And she was panicked. She was terrified. Years later, the year was 2008, 
she was invited to give the commencement address at Harvard University. And at that time, she referred to this terrible valley that she had been through earlier in her life. And this is J.K. Rowling's quote. She said, and so rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I have built the rest of my life. Isn't that beautiful? Powerful. Well, let's apply that to grief. Rock bottom can become the solid foundation on which we build the rest of our lives. Ron, thank you very much. It is my honor to be with you. Our studio engineer is Brian Mackenda, and I'm Solid Bama. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Juliet, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.